Welcome to another episode of Surface Tension. This is the podcast where we explore ideas and notions that we encounter. The question that we want to answer today is how do you get better at learning and how do you get better at solving those problems in your life? We're going to be talking about something that was familiar to us and we had to go through, which was the case interview process Mm -hmm. for consulting. If you guys aren't familiar, me and Sherrod both worked at Boston Consulting Group last summer and had to go through a pretty rigorous case interview process to get into the company. And at first we thought it was only kind of a job interview and it was something that we would never use again, kind of a skill that was niche. We were going to be, you know, solving these problems and then we could forget about it once we got the job and move on from there. But what we found was that it actually applies to the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. And it's allowed us, the thought process that we used for those interviews allowed us to become better decision makers and better able to learn things in general. Right. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I mentioned earlier how I thought of it at the beginning as kind of the something like an SAT where you or ACT, where you take it once and it's sort of this disposable means of acquiring, like uh, you know your college acceptance. But in this case, it's the consulting job offer, right? And I think what we want to talk about today is how we actually learned that the tools that we garnered from learning how to case interview better have helped us a lot in kind of our life's problems and learnings. So in terms of the way that this episode is going to be laid out, we're first going to talk a little bit about what case interviewing actually looks like and then how each part of that can apply to being better at learning and better at problem solving before we kind of zoom out into takeaways and the things that we can also apply frameworks to in the rest of our life. So could you just kind of tell us a little bit about what a case interview looks like? Yeah. So in terms of what a case interview actually is, I think it's sort of a parallel type of interview that consulting firms and actually a lot of other firms use now to test a lot of your logical and reactionary abilities. How do you absorb a problem and break it down into different pieces that allow you to solve it in a more structured manner? And also, how are you able to explain your structure to other people? I think something I tell people a lot when I case interview them is, you can be the smartest person in the world, but if you can't convince someone that you're smart, it doesn't matter. No one's gonna care and no one's gonna believe you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very important, as important as it is to be logical, but to be very transparent and fluid with the way that you can explain your logic to other people. Okay, got it. And in terms of the individual components of the case, can you take us through what it looks like, kind of top to bottom? What does it look like? So I, as an interviewer, could ask you, Sherrod, right? There's a problem with this business and we don't even have to get into a specific problem, but there's a problem. What, uh, and then your goal is to solve that problem and get to the root cause of it so that you can help me as a consultant to say, this is what your business should do in the future. Yeah. So it's typically a mock scenario where you as the interviewee would perform as a consultant to maybe your manager or the client sometimes. And they, yes, they give you a problem. It could be profitability. It really could be anything. Like I've even had cases about the parking in Chicago, which is awful. Right. And they're trying to get you to solve it. (laughs) Right. And yeah, it could be about anything, which I think is, is kind of cool. Um, one time Jacob Swinney gave me a case about rocket ships. That was actually <laughs> one of my first cases ever. And I was like, what? I thought I was supposed to solve like revenue and right. <laughs> solving like how many rockets should go to the moon. Um, but yeah. And they basically give you this prompt and you're supposed to absorb a lot of this information and initially react to it with some type of structure, breaking down all of the the factors is what they call them, or buckets, that 
encompass the problems where you think could be going wrong in this whole scenario. And you break down all of them, and then you go and start from whichever problem that you think is a priority. So, for instance, in the easiest one to talk about is the uh, profitability scenario. In profitability, not to get too businessy, but there's revenue and there's costs, right? And this is a really, really easy case to get into because the equation is actually already the factors. And from there, you look at things that contribute to both of these buckets. So for instance, within revenue, it's price and volume. So for volume, that could be things like marketing. It could be locations, geographies, um, kind of anything, your target market, whatever. Um, again, to not be too businessy, these are basically levers within your buckets that could be pushing the case one way or another. Mm -hmm. And you want to find this root of the problem through breaking it down into some sort of structure. Yeah. So by lever, that's kind of if you increase revenue, right, you're pulling the revenue lever. You're kind of increasing. If you think about like a seesaw, you're increasing the revenue to increase the profit. Otherwise, you're pulling a lever to decrease costs. Uh, similar, you want to drop the costs and then increase the revenues to increase the profit. So it's right. a really structured way to grab that problem. That's a good way to think about it. And I think another point just off of that is you're creating these levers so that you can pull them and see mm -hmm. what the hell happens, right? Exactly, exactly. You create these levers to see, all right, I have all of these things that I know could be going wrong. And this is off, like this is a reality. It's like when we face problems, we often like, th there's never really a scenario where you know the exact root of a, a really big problem in your life. Right. And you create these levers to kind of pull them randomly and see what happens. And that's being called, uh, that's called in a case interview, being hypothesis driven. And so what that means is you have, you know, some sort of idea of what um, the problem is. You've defined it mm -hmm. and you want to solve it. And you want to pull all of these levers to see what could happen and what's the best thing that happens from all of them. Right. And you want to pull those levers in a way that Similar, so like we use the word hypothesis, similar to how a scientist has a hypothesis. They say, I have this hypothesis, I'm gonna test this hypothesis. So I'm gonna pull this lever, you know, 25% of the <laughs> way down. If that solves the problem, then boom, my hypothesis was correct. Right. Otherwise, I'm gonna disregard that hypothesis. Move on to the next one. Move on to the next one and be very logical. Never come back to that hypothesis. Know that you did it right or wrong the first time that you did it and then move on. And that's a big thing from casing is like, you wanna be efficient. You wanna continue to move on and you don't wanna be caught down or having to backtrack and rethink things that you already computed. Just make sure that you're testing your hypothesis up front and then from there, keep moving on. Yeah. Uh, one last point in terms of the actual case interviewing stuff is that when you're creating these structures, I really like to tell people like that it's a backbone for the rest of your case. Mm -hmm. It basically allows you to have something to rely on once your initial hypothesis fails. I think that's a lot of the... Um, that's a big problem when it comes to people facing their own, or actually, I'm gonna re-say this. That's typically a big issue when people are facing problems in their life, that they don't have some sort of secondary hypothesis to lean on. Their initial kind of um, you know, hypothesis fails and they're like, oh, what am I gonna do now, right? right? If you have all of these levers to keep going through, you're gonna be all right, right? You can just keep testing and keep finding out what's going wrong. Even if all of them fail, create a new set of levers. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're looking at it wrong. And that's kind of the beautiful thing about structuring is it gives you this backbone to rely on. Yeah. And I love how you tied it back to people's everyday life, kind of to the hypothesis idea. Sometimes it's easy to, and I do this all the time, 
not perfect at it, but you repeat the same efforts, you try the same thing, even though it fails, right? Or you try a different variation of it, something that's not exactly going to get you a different result, but because you're not remembering exactly how you did it before or something like that, then in the future, you're kind of repeating your efforts and wasting time and getting better at something. Yeah, exactly. And I think we can kind of get that, make that a little bit more tangible in this next part. Yeah. So here, I think we should talk about how do you apply that to your life? So say you, Sharad, want to learn something and let's call that fishing, right? You want to, mm-hmm. you've, have you been fishing before? Once. Okay, sweet. Yeah. So I was actually really good at it. <laughs> Just, I don't know if that was luck or maybe, I don't know. But I was, it was fly fishing in Colorado. Okay, yeah. sweet. So that's actually good. You've done it once, right? You have a little bit of information about it. Mm. Say you want to get better at learning fishing. How would you break down getting better at learning about fishing in a way that makes you, allows you to get better at it consistently and without backtracking or without making errors? Yeah, so I think... Um, initially there's already different types of fishing, right? I think aligning with the type of fishing that plays into your strengths just as a person would make the most sense. Okay. You know, if you're not And actually to jump in really quick, sorry, let's, let's keep tying this back to the consulting, how it applies to the case interview too, like what each bucket of it, uh, like for example, the structure, how would you structure out the idea maybe to start with? So to start out, right, we have this big branch of fishing and then within there, the first bucket I would say is types of fishing. Okay. Right. And within that bucket, there could be fly fishing. I don't know. I don't even know what the rest of them are called, but <laughs> stationary fishing, like boat fishing, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, and figuring out, like, all right, what, uh, which type of fishing do I, do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And then I think another bucket that you could really look into is your purpose for fishing. I mean, people have different purposes, right? It could be for, you know, just pleasure so fun mm-hmm. it could be because i don't know you need food mm-hmm. um competition any of those things could probably fit into that bucket okay and then from there i would probably look at the methods of getting better at fishing so are are you going to take lessons you know because when i went fishing i took lessons okay and without those lessons i'd be sitting there throwing fishing line in the water doing nothing right 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 and so without that crucial instruction i wasn't i wouldn't have been able to catch fish um, and then a, a last bucket that i could maybe see being a, a piece of it is what are your personal affiliations or maybe not affiliations parallels with fishing right are you someone that wants to do some type of patient fishing are you someone that likes a little bit more action you know mm. what are your real goals with fishing i think is a big bucket as well and then from there you know like let's say you don't even know a lot of these things you could list out different goals that people already have for fishing and just like your own goals as well like why do you even want to get into it is it your hobby whatever and then from there that's probably how i would structure it okay sounds good and i was thinking about it when when you were saying that also i think i would probably structure it differently Hmm. which gets to all these frameworks kind of malleable this is an approach that every person can use differently so I think I would say, if I wanted to get better at fishing, I would say there's the technique of fishing. Hmm. So I want to say, uh, do I want to get better at, so let's say you take, for instance, that you want to get better at fly fishing. Right. To get better at fly fishing, you have to learn the technique of fly fishing. And then there's different things that you can change, right? Like your hook, like the different- The bait. Like, the bait. Yeah. Things the along fly, those lines. The fly, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's even a whole science to like now that you're really mentioning it there's a whole science to even the flies mm. and it's it's almost an art in itself but yeah continue yeah no exactly so 
because it's an art, because it's something that you can fully dive into, that's a bucket that you should have on its own and that makes it structured, right? So by being structured, you say, if I get better at my technique, then I'm getting better at fishing. Yeah, it's the, it's the concept of levers. This is this mm-hmm. is how you apply them. Exactly, levers. So or levers, either way, however you want to say. I don't it. know how it's pronounced. Yeah, I, I like the lever. Uh, so say you pull the lever to say I want to get better at fishing. I pull the lever to. <laughs> I'm just jumping back for I pull the lever to get better at my technique. Then I get better at fishing. Mm-hmm. Or I pull the lever to know more about flies and say I want to test out. Uh, you know, I want to test out a fly that looks like uh, this, or I want to taste a, test out a fly that looks like a shrimp, or right. etc. Which one works better? Then I want a hypothesis test. Oh, what bait works better? Does a worm, does a black worm work better? Does a lighter worm look better, etc. And then you keep iterating, you keep testing these different combinations in a over some way. period of time, and you figure out, all right, what's what has given me the best results, and then you run with it. Right? Exactly. And then if that fails, do it again. Exactly. All over again, and it's. it's I really like the way I've, I've kind of two points to make here. I really like the way that you talked about it because I think it illustrates this process of um, failure. Like you're not going to mm-hmm. get the right solution every time you try and solve a problem. You have to fail in order to succeed in your problems, right? And so that's what being hypothesis driven is, is that it's okay to be wrong and you just keep going from there. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have this backbone, this structure that you can just keep going with mm-hmm. because you know that you might be wrong, but it doesn't matter because you have something else to test right there. Right. Right. Yeah. And the and backbone keeps you structured, keeps right. you moving, keeps you yeah. testing in the right direction. I also love the idea that your structure looks completely different from mine. If a consulting firm interviews eight people and seven of these people have the exact same approach to a specific problem, they're probably not going to hire those people. Right. Because all they're doing is taking a shared approach that they've just learned and spewing it back out at a problem right? where it doesn't really, really align, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the cool thing about it is you can bring your unique and personal traits into your solution. That's why mine and yours were so different is I prioritize different things mm-hmm. and so do you. And that's completely fine, right? Honestly, like if we worked at it together, we could probably create an even better structure mm-hmm. just talking through it, right? Absolutely. And I think that that's a cool way to think about it. Yeah. So with that in mind, one more thing that makes someone really good at going through the case interview process, but also is super useful for your everyday life, is being mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. So let's break that down. So being mutually exclusive when you're creating a structure, so around fishing, for example, each bucket that you create, you want to be different than the other one, and you don't want them to overlap. But you want each bucket to still be collectively exhaustive. Right. You want them to cover 100% of what's relevant for the problem. Right, yeah. You're creating this full, I know I keep using the term, but I think it's a great term, backbone. Like you're having a full set of trials that you could just keep going down. Yeah, exactly. And what that lets you do is say, if you're mutually exclusive, you can hypothesis test. You can say, oh, because the fly is different than the bait, if you're testing the fly, then that doesn't affect the bait, right? It doesn't affect, you can kind of test one independently of the other. Yeah. As opposed to if you had two buckets that overlapped, if you were to test one, then it wouldn't quite test the other. Yeah. I'm, it, it like wouldn't eliminate and wouldn't let you be efficient. I'm going to break that down a little bit even more, I think. So when you're being mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive, that would mean within what we've talked about already, your structure. Let's say you had four different buckets that you broke your life problem into. 
and you have a list under each of those buckets, that would mean that you have created these buckets in a way that you could test everything in a singular bucket. And if nothing happens, you know you can now exclude that bucket from the problem or like one of the roots of your problem. It's a non-factor. And that's right. why it's super important is because you're able to cover all of the grounds of your problem in a very organized manner. Yep. All about being organized, all about being you know, structured is the word we've been using a lot. So then let's say you want to learn, still on the area of learning, say you want to learn about something academic. So I've been thinking about a lot in uh, a CS class I'm in. So taking a class called algorithms, and we're breaking down different bits of how algorithms work and how you track the runtime, how, how efficient they are, mm -hmm. how much memory they use, all that stuff. And when you're thinking about learning something, you can also break down what you're learning into your own custom framework. So you can say, oh, the first unit we learned about is dynamic, program dynamic programming. The second one is graphs. You know, under graphs, there's depth first search, there's breadth first search, there's all these different things. Right, yeah. Building that mental map of the different concepts and being mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. Yeah. So, you know, dynamic programming is one, graphs is another, breadth first search is different than depth first search. You keep making these buckets and you keep tracking back and saying, oh, what do I know within depth first search? What do I know within uh, right. uh, breadth first search? And using that as kind of a visual map yeah. to say, this is where my information is coming from and this is what I know. Do I know everything that I need to? How do I relate all this information? One point that you're kind of illustrating here is in, in another piece that's super important when you're structuring is knowing how a specific maybe idea that you've come up with like kind of far down the line mm. is related to the root problem. Okay. Like what's the direct path that it's related to it as and why does that matter? Mm -hmm. And the reason that matters is if you can identify what basically what your lever is moving within the whole chain of your structure, you're able to understand the whole thing more. So like you just said, for learning, it makes a lot of sense because if you understand why, like let's say you have in the CS class to like 10 buckets of information and they all have their own little pieces, little tidbits of information that you have to learn. If you have categorized everything into your structure, then like honestly, you should be able to say, which of these pieces of information affect this part of whatever problem. And it gives you a better kind of, I like the, the word you use, mental map to kind of go into your exams with or go into any problem out like coding problem that you might face because if there's something wrong with your code or I mean, I imagine your exams are coding exams as well mm -hmm. and there's a specific error and or it's not outputting what you want you would probably know what area or at least some sort of kind of condensed area that you can look into to solve the problem. Yeah, totally. Moving on then to the problems that we mentioned. Everyone's got problems, right? Mm -hmm. How do you, what was the problem we were talking about before? Uh, getting better at running, right? Running. How do you, how would you break down getting better at running? So I'm not a runner, but <laughs> I think... I think we talked about it in similar to kind of a profitability framework. I think we talked about it in speed and duration, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think so. And I think we said that if you were to parallel it to a profitability framework, it would be profitability at the beginning, then revenue and cost. For this running framework, we would have endurance at the beginning and then speed and duration. Mm -hmm. And so 
Speed and duration are your levers in this scenario. So to clarify, like endurance, we could say equals speed times duration or profitability equals revenue minus cost. Some right. type of it's like some type of formula within that. Mm -hmm. And that's how we make this this kind of framework. Right. Mm -hmm. And so speed and duration would be your levers. Mm -hmm. So basically you want to get better endurance. Mm -hmm. And so there's two things that we're saying you can change to achieve better endurance, right? Right. And so the first one is speed, and the second one is duration. And just a you can disclaimer, run. we're not a <laughs> Yeah, this isn't certified. some, some. this is just how I would break down maybe in improving my own personal endurance. Yep, yep. I'm not David Goggins, or I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to run. But I would first test, all right, how long can I run for? And how does this affect my endurance? So let's say I can only run one mile consistently. Mm -hmm. Maybe improving how much longer I can run that mile. So the duration, or even if you don't even look at duration as a distance, but you look at it as time, mm -hmm. the longer you can run, the more endurance you would have, even if you don't cover like a specific amount of ground. Right. Whereas your other level would be speed, right? How fast am I running this mile? So maybe you're running a mile and then you're dead, but it's because you're running a six minute mile. Right. And then you're wondering, okay, like why? And it sounds really simple, but this type of breakdown of this problem is very similar to, I mean, obviously the structure of it will be way more complex. The problems that you run into that are, you know, more difficult ones in your lives, right? So when you're looking at speed, you got to say, you can test it from there. You could say, what if I run this mile as an eight minute mile? Mm -hmm. Will this, you know, increase the time or will this affect the, my endurance over the specific time? Right. that I'm now holding still. And then from there, you can even keep testing between those two levers. You can pull one a little bit and one the other way and see what happens. Um, and running is great because it's a pretty easy thing to experiment. Mm -hmm. You can you know, run on a day and say, these are my goals. This is what I'm going to run at. This is how far I'm going to run. And this is my time. Mm -hmm. And so you basically control two things and say, all right, this is the speed I'm running at. And there are, I'm aiming to run it, and this is the distance I'm aiming to run. And you could see how much time you take to do it. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think that that's a good example overall. And then you can come back in a month and say, oh, is my endurance getting better? Right. Or two months, right, using that structure is used based on those variables. Is my endurance getting better? Right. It keeps yeah. you honest and keeps you consistent with having a metric to track over time. It's exactly what we talked about, right? So let's say you come to some sort of conclusion that, oh, I need to you know, slow down when I'm running. That's what's going to, uh, you know, from my tests right now, that's what's going to increase my endurance. But let's say you ran tests over a week. Mm -hmm. Maybe it wasn't accurate. And then you go run like that for a month and nothing happens. Right. Well, then you can come back and run the exact same test now knowing that speed isn't the issue. Yeah. Or maybe it even is and you have to go even slower. And you could, you could do that, right? Um, and that's the cool thing about having these structures is you always have a place to go when you think that your current solution is wrong. Right. There's always a new solution to test. And honestly, now that you say that, I'm thinking about some a structure that everybody uses, which are a lot of people that uh, lift weights hopefully use, which is, you know, a lifting program. They'll hit right. a certain amount of reps, a certain amount of weight, and they'll try to increase that weight every time. Yeah, it's called progressive overload. Progressive overload, and it's something that people don't think about as a structure, but it's a structure that we all use in our daily life. Same thing with pros and cons list, right? If we have a problem right. where we say... That's a structure that everyone uses subconsciously even. Yeah. I mean, ever since I've been in third grade, I've been making <laughs> pros and cons lists. Right. And now that you know that there's, you can uh, consciously think about how to break things down into other factors. So for example, you could have, say you want to 
figure out what you want to do after graduation, right? That's the boat I'm in right now. <laughs> and you say, oh, maybe I could go to Europe. Maybe I could go to the Bay Area. Maybe I could go to Asia. So those are your three options, maybe like three buckets. Then there's pros and cons associated with each of those. Or you could break it down in other ways, right? So like, say I go to Europe. What's the cost? What's the, where, am I going to see my friends? Am I going to learn new experiences? Am I going to uh, experience new parts of the world? Right. Those are your different like structure or your different questions that you're asking. And then you can evaluate each of those against each other. Right. Even if you're like, let's say you're a more mathematical person. Mm -hmm. There's even ways to attack a problem like that by giving weights or prioritizations exactly. to each thing. So like, let's say you had seven different options after graduation. Mm -hmm. You could create factors for all of them. So maybe a 10 factors that they all commonly have and are better or worse at. And you could create weights of prioritization for these factors mm -hmm. and then create equations for all of them that basically give you a number that represents them in terms of how well they do at all of your factors. And that's the same idea as, as your structure, right? You're creating levers and you're seeing how each different scenario pulls them and aligns them in a way to where you get a certain output, right? Yeah, and I think we should keep honestly running through different examples of ways you can use frameworks in your daily life because I think it'll kind of expose people to where the thoughts are. And we're really curious too, after you guys listen to this, where you guys see this applicable to your life. I think we're always trying to get better at living our lives too. So we're curious how you guys are thinking about this and applying it. Another thing that comes up in my mind is, say you want to, something I've been thinking about lately is the relationships in my life, mm -hmm. right? We have only a certain number of days left in college and I'm thinking about the friends that I have and the people that I'm gonna be surrounded with after college. And if someone were to get better at, uh, the way that I've been thinking about the people that I wanna be surrounded by is, one, do I look up to them in some type of way? Like, is there something about them that I look up to? Right. And then two, do I enjoy being around them? Am I, am I excited? Am I having fun when I'm around them? If those two things hit, then that's the right person to have in my life. And that's who I'm going to spend my time with in the last 50 something days that we have in college. Right. And and there's other yeah. factors that go into that too. You know, like for, for instance, for me, what I would think be thinking about is, you know, what is from, I don't know, maybe their body language or how much they talk to me. What is their representation of me? Like, so mm. like what you're thinking about, what do they think about me in those regards? Right. And also, I think there's even a bigger thing even before all of that is with with problems like that, or not even problems, with scenarios like that, there's other pieces that get factored in too. So what's some type of moral truth or like some type of friend proverb that you live by? Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, having moved throughout all these countries, one thing I know is that people that are actually your friends will always be your friends. No matter if you don't see them for six months, you don't text them in years. So for instance, when I went to LA a couple weeks ago, Yeah, I saw this guy that I hadn't seen for six years. Last time I saw him, he was 14. <laughs> and he was literally the person that introduced me to the types of movies that I watch now, the types of music that I listen to now. And he was such an important mentor figure at the time. And more importantly, a friend of mine that established this idea, or maybe he didn't establish it, but he falls into this idea that no matter how long you haven't seen them for, how far they live away from you, they will always, it'll always feel like home whenever you see them again. Doesn't matter how much you texted them. There's, there's no real factors outside of your friendship that affect that. And that's something that I hold in, in my structure, right? It's like, mm. that's a rule that they have to follow. Right. Um, and so I don't tend to, you know, create things like texting as a factor. 
I think it's nice. Like you should reach out to people. Like I didn't not reach out to him. Mm -hmm. um, I reached out to him periodically, but it wasn't an every week thing, right? I'm not reaching out to him maybe once a month when Kendrick drops an album or something. Like right. you know, what I mean? <laughs> it was like a special occasion thing, but just to let him know, hey, like I'm I appreciate that mm -hmm. you showed me this type of music. I'm still listening to it. Thank you. Like, what do you think of this album? Right. You know, it's that type of of thing for me, and that's a factor in my structure when I think about. Who do I want to be my friend post-graduation? Right. And notice, again, both of us had very different trees and very different ways right. to structure that. Yeah. Out. I want to point out, too, that's because, you know, we come from different backgrounds, have different friend experiences, you know, like, mm -hmm. that's everyone. And that's not a, a a wrong thing. That's not a problem. That's just how people are always going to be. They're always going to be different. Yeah. And that's important. And that's cool. Yeah. So... Here then, I think, which way do you want to take it? I think we could either wrap up and go towards takeaways or keep going down different examples. I think we go towards takeaways. Okay, sweet. I think that was a pretty concrete example. Yeah, I think we did give a couple concrete examples. So what are your... If you do need another example, feel free to... Re if you made it to this point and you need another example, feel free to reach out. Yeah, feel free to reach out. We're happy to talk. Uh, so what are your main takeaways then from this? How does someone go about... We talked a lot about what a consulting interview looks like. Let's jump one step beyond that. The discipline is just thinking through things in a structured way. So building out a structure, building out a backbone for problems or for learning that you want to take away and then using that in your life. How do you go about using that? How do you go about building your own frameworks as time goes on? Yeah, I think the big idea here is when you're building a framework, think of it as kind of like a trampoline or something that you can fall on and like feel free to fail. You want to create the opportunity for yourself to fail so that you're able to test every possible scenario, or maybe not every, but mm -hmm. a lot of possible avenues or scenarios or solutions, mm -hmm. whatever it is, however you're solving your problem. Create a kind of um, environment for yourself to fail. I think that's a big thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I also will go down that route of it makes it productive to fail. Right. And says, if I fail, I learn something new and I keep getting better from there. I think another thing that um, is important is, you know, not everyone's just like we just described. Everyone has different frameworks to approach things. Not everyone's frameworks will work for you. Mm -hmm. And that's all right. But some of them will. Right. So like a lot of good authors mm -hmm. create frameworks that help you think through things that you don't think about before. So, for instance, I've talked about Think Again a hundred times already great book for structures in terms of rethinking and things like that. I'm reading this book called The Subtle Art right now. It's a great book. Love for... not giving a beat. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great book for terms of how to really not care about things in a careful way and really just gives you, and that's, that's what these books do, right? I think a lot of people are very hesitant with self-help books and things like that. But I think they're great because you can read this book and think, oh my God, I just learned a whole new skill or you could read it and think, okay, this is not for me. Yeah. And that's all right because you're giving yourself the opportunity to adopt a framework. Not every framework is going to work for you, but when they do and they're great, it'll change your life, I think. Yeah. Let's end it there. Keep exposing yourselves to frameworks. Keep thinking through where you can apply in your life. Take time one time the next week to apply a framework or a structure to a problem or something that you're trying to learn. And then go test it. And go test it. And, and I think both of us would agree that it'll you'll be better at it for it. And it'll be something that you'll continue to use for the rest of your life. Service Tension signing off. Till next time. Hey, are you still listening? If so, you've reached the end of the episode. 
As usual, you can find all of our updates on Instagram at surfacetension.pod and look for future releases on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.